These are the Greek Myth Files, your entree into the world of Greek myth in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to another episode of the Greek Myth Files, the last in our series, What Greek Myth Is and Is Not, where we ask and try and answer some of the important questions about Greek myth. Since we plumbed the depths of the Greek story so far, we thought it would be fun to focus on a specific myth, or rather a specific mythical figure for a whole show. And because we've mentioned centaurs in earlier episodes, what better way we figure to end the season than with a full-length feature on these fascinating creatures? As it happens, we also have some scholars who find centaurs to be among their favorite myths, so this episode will be the first of what I hope will be many that feature the mythical stories that scholars are drawn to. Today's featured guests are Emma Aston from Reading Universities, and once again, my colleague at arms from Canberra, Greta Hawes. Both have fascinating takes on centaurs, those part horse, part human creatures that endure in our own popular culture. Just think of the advertisements for Old Spice and the Motar of Progressive Insurance. In our first segments, we feature an interview with Emma Aston, whose scholarly work focuses on the local mythology of a land called Thessaly, or the northern frontier of what we think of Greece. Then we'll turn back to Greta Hawes, who will tell us why centaurs fascinate her, and she'll read a fabulous passage by a Greek doctor who tries to imagine life as a centaur. It should be interesting and fun, so let's get started on another episode of The Greek Myth Files. Imagine the setting. We're in northern Greece. A wedding ceremony has taken place. The banquet tables are laid out full of food and wine. The groom, named Perithous, is a local hero, and his bride is Hippodamia. The wedding is a full family affair. Close relatives, part of the Lapith clan, are there, as are other guests, distant relatives from the surrounding mountains, less cultured, the centaurs. All seems to go fine, until the less civilized mountain folk start drinking too much, and soon the party crosses that fine line between a raucous but fun shindig and heads decisively into an out-of-control melee. The drunk centaurs start carousing too much, things break, and eventually one or more centaur tries to abduct the bride and take her away. Perithous's immediate family bond together and try and stop the abduction. A brawl ensues. A close relative of the groom is beaten by the centaurs into the ground with tree trunks. The civilized townspeople, the Lapiths, eventually drive the drunken and besotted centaurs from the wedding and back into the wild, but the damage has been done. Oh, the things that wine can do. But don't take my word for it. Here's another story told in Homer's Odyssey, which is spoken ironically by one of the suitors who's trying to woo Penelope at a feast and suggesting that the disguised Odysseus was acting inappropriately because he had drunk too much wine. Wine is many a man's undoing when he gulps his draft and doesn't drink in moderation. Wine it was that darkened the wits of Eurytion, the centaur, in the palace of bold Perithous. The centaur had come to the Lapis country, and now with wine he clouded his understanding, and in his frenzy did monstrous things in the very hall of Perithous. The heroes were seized with indignation. They leapt up. They dragged the centaur across the courtyard and out of doors. They lopped off his ears and nose with ruthless bronze. 
and the frenzied creature trailed off, taking his retribution with him in his still darkened mind. From this beginning came the long feud between men and centaurs, but it was Eurytion, first of all, who brought punishment on himself by his drunkenness. Now, this version is not exactly the same as the one I told at the outset, but we see the same sort of feud between, as Homer puts it, the centaurs and humans. The Greek here is quite clear that the centaurs are somehow not men. What Homer does not tell us, either here or in the Iliad, where the centaurs are mentioned as well, is whether the centaurs had the form that we have come to know and love, that is, horses with human torsos, heads, and arms. Homer probably had this in mind, since he calls them shaggy elsewhere, and horse-human hybrids are found in art around the same time. Be that as it may, at its core this myth explores the division between moderation and excess, between human civilization and bestial savagery. Eventually, this myth involving the fight between heroic human lapiths and savage mountain-dwelling centaurs became a pan-Hellenic symbol of the emergence of human civilization. This battle, called the Centauromachy, or Battle with the Centaurs, was found prominently displayed in various places, most notably on some of the most important religious buildings that the Greeks would all see at festivals, major festivals. One such place was the Temple of Zeus at Olympia, location of the famous religious and athletic festival, the original Olympic Games. It was also found on the Parthenon, the magnificent temple to Athena on the Acropolis of Athens, and included in the battle the local hero Theseus, who helps the heroes fend off the drunken and violent centaurs. The violence and immoderate behavior of the centaurs are also found in other myths. When Heracles was leading his bride home and faced a swollen river in Aetolia, the centaur Nessus volunteered to ferry his bride across, only to try and rape her in the process. Heracles dispatched the centaur with a volley of arrows. In the stories about the heroic woman Atalanta, who famously lived and hunted in the woods, we find similar behavior. A couple of centaurs came to woo her, but when rejected, they turned to violence. Atalanta, like Heracles, dispatched them with a couple of well-placed arrows. But there's another centaur, Chiron, sometimes pronounced Chiron, who embodied everything that the violent centaurs did not. He was sensible, calm, and educated, the teacher of many heroes of the region, including Jason, the most famous Argonaut, and Achilles, the best fighter in the Trojan War. Fortunately, we have at our disposal a scholar who can help us understand centaurs, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Her past work has focused on hybrid monsters and the local areas that house them. But currently, she is in deep with the centaurs and the importance that they had in forging a sense of local identity. Emma Aston is Associate Professor of Classics at the University of Reading in South Central England and is the author of a number of articles about the mythical story world, including work on hybrid gods, ones that combine human and animals, as well as mythical stories that take place in a very special area of the Greek world called Thessaly. I caught up with Professor Aston in early November to talk to her about centaurs in the Greek world. The interview, conducted by Zoom, has been edited for length and clarity. So this episode is about favorite myths. So I'm going to start by asking you about your favorite myth, which is located in an area to the north of Greece called Thessaly. 
Can you briefly tell our listeners where and what Thessaly is? Certainly. I always have to start my conference papers by telling people where Thessaly is. It's not one of the most well-known parts of ancient Greece. Essentially, it's between famous regions. So if you were to keep going north from Delphi or south from Macedonia, the bit in between the two is essentially Thessaly. So it's at the northern edge of um, uncontestably Greek territory. If you go any further north from Thessaly, you get into the territory that might be considered non-Greek. Thessaly is a really interesting area. And one of the things that fascinates you in Thessaly is that there are these half horse, half human creatures, centaurs. So can you tell us how you got interested in centaurs? Is it part of your Thessalian interest or is it something else? I would say the two interests develop side by side, really. They belong so closely together. Um, my PhD thesis was on hybrid um, gods, so I became interest in, interested in the central Charon, who was worshipped as a god in Thessaly, and I think we're probably going to talk about him a bit later on, so I'll keep him on ice for the moment. Um, what I'm working on at the moment is about how communities projected themselves and their identity to other Greeks. So I'm looking at how the Thessalians wanted to see what kind of shared identity they wanted to put across. And mythology is a really big part of that. And centaurs are useful for that because they have such a striking visual form, um, being these hybrid horse-human mixtures. And also because they're so geographically grounded, there are, I know we're going to come on to talk about this, but there are only really two parts of Greece which are strongly associated with centaurs, um, Thessaly in the north and Arcadia in the Peloponnese. So as soon as you see a centaur as an ancient Greek, you would think first of Thessaly, and second, perhaps, of Arcadia. So they're a really interesting way of marketing a region's special identity and what set it apart. I'm also interested in the fact that they're used in this way by Thessalian communities, even though they have quite a bad rep in ancient myth. They don't always behave well. They're associated with immoderate, violent, drunken conduct. So one of the questions that interests me is how they can be useful um, for kind of self-advertising purposes when they might at first glance, seem like quite negative figures. That's a great segue to another question I have, which is one of the most important mythical episodes that takes place in Thessaly is the battle between the centaurs and the human lapiths. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and how that might fit into the you know, projection of identity? Well, just to go, go back a step, I, I suppose a really important thing to bear in mind is there's no one version of any Greek myth. Um, we don't have one authoritative version which kind of displaces all the others. So with this story, as with any other, we're looking at a patchwork of different ancient accounts. And the fullest ones are not always the most authentic. For example, the one that I'm, I'm drawing on most when I'm describing this myth is the account by Diodorus, Diodorus Siculus in the first century BC. But the reason his account is so full is that what he's trying to do is stitch together lots of different versions that don't always agree. And Diodorus gets himself into a right pickle over the centaurs in an interesting way, which is going to be relevant to their conflict with the Lapids, as I'll describe in a moment. So he starts off by getting thoroughly tangled up in their genealogy. He describes a descent um, from Apollo, the god Apollo, and an, a Thessalian nymph daughter of the river Peneos called Stilbe. And Apollo and Stilbe produce two sons, Lapithes and Kentauros. Now they're obviously the, the ancestors of the Lapiths and the Centaurs. So the first thing we notice is that so far from being totally different groups, 
um, these Lapiths and Centaurs who were famous for their conflict are actually closely related. They're, they're members of the same family. Of course, everybody knows that families produce some of the worst conflicts. So maybe that's not as surprising as you'd think. Um, then, um, then Diodorus really starts getting into confusing territory because he describes um, the Lapith Ixion, who is the grandson of the original Lapith, Lapithes, as um, pr producing, as, as being the father of the centaurs of human form, who then have sex with horses. This is Greek myth we're talking about, so we're going to be having the occasional bit of racing material, and then produce the hippocentauroi, the horse centaurs. So you can see we've got some really problematic stuff going on in Diodorus. We have a hero called Kentauros who has nothing to do with the production of the centaurs. So obviously something's gone wrong in the storytelling there. We've got human form centaurs and we've got horse form centaurs and Diodorus's attempt to reconcile the two. So the whole thing's a big mess. This is what happens when you try to get a neat single version of what's actually lots of divergent versions of the myth. But anyway, what it does is it produces these two groups called Lapiths and Centaurs, who are presented as hostile, but are actually really tangled together through birth and lineage in both Thessalian tribes, who have various forms of conflict, territorial and otherwise, but the Centaurs eventually block their copybook beyond recall when they turn up to the wedding of the Lapith Perithuus, have too much to drink, which is what they always do, never open a bottle of wine when a centaur is present, it, things are bound to get messy, and um, crash the party, wreck the furniture, attempt to abduct the bride, and in, end up being um, not only defeated by the Lapis, but actually chased out of their ancestral fortress on Mount Pelion in Thessaly. Now, as you sort of suggest, it's got that myth, although it starts off in this very local area, becomes a metaphor for all sorts, or a way of thinking through all sorts of big themes to do with how we should and should not behave and interact with each other, civilization and barbarism. Of course, when it's used in monumental sculpture, the centauromachy on temples, it can present an instantly recognizable sort of parable of acceptable and unacceptable conduct. Uh, and it's very, very, it can be very universal, which explains why the myth is so popular. Can you talk about how these myths might have operated on the local level? Yes, yeah, certainly. So this is the kind of question that everybody working on regional mythology has to ask, which is how involved were the people in that region in the production of these myths? Or the alternative, which you, you kind of suggest, is that these myths are just kind of imposed on a region. Um, do we have to entertain the possibility that Thessaly is just a useful place to put certain myths because its perceived character is suitable? So Thessaly in antiquity was thought of as a, a wild, remote land, a place of magic and witchcraft and shape-shifting, uh, the crossing of natural boundaries, all sorts of things were possible. And so certainly I think the Thessalian identity of centaurs is partly an external projection. P people thinking, well, these are wild beings, half animal. Where would they naturally reside? Well, Thessaly, which is at the northern edge of Greece, it's on the edge of the, the known just before you get into kind of barbarian lands. So that's one way of looking at it. However, there are two phases of active Thessalian involvement in, in this mythology at the local level. The first is that these myths definitely come from Thessaly. The late great scholar Martin West talked about the, the, the existence, which we have to sort of extrapolate from later material, of early sort of late Mycenaean, sub-Mycenaean, northern Greek 
epic or myth-making concerning what he called the Yolkos cycle, a bundle of stories about Jason and the Argonauts, Peleus, Thetis, the parents of Achilles, and also the centaur Charon having a big role in that early chunk of northern myth-making. But that's, that's very early on. After that, our Thessalian sources really drop out of the picture until much later. They suddenly get interested in this stuff again in the Hellenistic period, so the three the 200s, the third century BCE and a little bit later. And it's really interesting why and how they suddenly start fitting themselves back into the story, telling these stories again, doing things like incorporating centaurs on their coinage, which is the clearest possible way of signaling that these, these beings and these stories are useful ambassadors. Let's talk about Chiron. And you have this really interesting thing where you have a group of centaurs, same shape and form, violent, alcoholic, bad behaving. And you've got Chiron, who is a good centaur, educated, and raises heroes, including Achilles. Can you talk about how does he come to be different? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, as to whether it's deliberate, I think it must be because Charon and the other centaurs are brought into conflict and, and, and connection with each other in the story. So the, the, the ancient authors are definitely trying to make us as aware as possible of how completely polarized they are. And, and Charon is the sort of anti-centaur. He is everything they are not. He has moderation. He has a sort of philosophical character. He's almost kind of too good to be true at times. And he's taken up into poetic and, and philosophical discourse course, for example, Pindar makes great use of him in his victory odes. And this takes us way away from his local context in Thessaly. He becomes a really developed metaphor for various philosophical principles. And I'm, I mean, I'm interested in that, but what I'm more interested in is, is how what happens to him on the local level, um, which is that in the, in the third century BC, he becomes a sort of local culture hero at this cult site on Mount Pelion uh, in Magnesia on the eastern periphery of Thessaly. I want to turn now away from Thessaly and to mention that centaurs, you mentioned earlier that centaurs are found mainly in Thessaly, but they're also found in Arcadia, which is this land-like locked area uh, to the south in the Peloponnesus. Can you talk a little bit about centaurs in Arcadia and are they the same, different? What's the, what's the connection, if any? They're so similar that it really makes one think there must be a transfer. And I think, I mean, it's really difficult to prove this with the fragmentary material available to us, but I think it's most likely that the tradition gets transferred from Thessaly to Arcadia. And Arcadia becomes the recipient of a kind of doublet. Not only do we have the centaurs, but we also have Arcadia's version of Charon, a good centaur called Pholos, who lives on Mount Pholoe. So again, it's a good centaur on top of a mountain. Um, there's, the similarities are so strong that I think there's a case of borrowing. Um, in fact, people like Apollodorus are, are mythographers who are trying to reconcile different versions of myths, try to work out how the two fit together, and they have Charon fleeing down from Thessaly to Arcadia after the terrible wedding party incident, and taking refuge down there 
and then falling foul of the hero Heracles, who has a very typical encounter with the centaurs in Arcadia, which is very like some of the accounts of the, the battles between Lapiths and centaurs, because um, Heracles goes to stay with or have a meal with the, the good centaur, Phollox, who makes the terrible mistake of opening a jar of wine for his guest. And the next thing we know, all the other centaurs, his rowdy cousins, are piling in because they smell the wine, they want a share of it. And poor Heracles has to deal with them. You know, I'm not sure how much sympathy I really have with him. And in the, in the fracas that ensues, Chaeron sustains a a fatal wound. So it turns out Arcadia was not a particularly good place for him to take refuge in after all. So the two the two sets of myths, Arcadian and Thessalian, are really tied together. It's difficult to extricate them, but I think we can we can think of the Thessalian ones as the earlier ones. Why Arcadia? Well, like Thessaly, it was a good place to put centaurs because it's associated very strongly with with hybrid figures. So if you think about the god Pan, for example, he's a native in Arcadia, he's a human goat hybrid, not so very far away. And so these kind of boundary crossing beings combining human and animal characteristics are, are really early fundamental ingredient of Arcadian mythology. So it's a natural step to bring the centaurs there and again, use them as a way of expressing Greece's wilder um, and less well-tamed areas. So it's clear you love this stuff from an intellectual point of view, but I'm wondering if you have a favorite portion of the myth. Well, um, I think actually, to be honest, the element in all this that really interests me is the horsey component. And I've sort of not really mentioned this, but um, another reason why Thessaly is a land of, of centaurs is that it's a land of horses as well. It's a, an area with rich, well-irrigated farmland, which can be used for arable production, but also for pastoral cultivation of horses and bovines, goats and sheep, far more so than any other part of Greece. And this quality of the natural environment produces a historical reality, which is lots of horses, very good cavalry and so on. But that feeds into myth when you get equine and equid um, imagery it attaches to that region all the more readily but what I like is the way in which the centaurs are the sort of untamed aspect of the horse mm. whereas on the Thessalian plains so coming down now off Mount Pelion off the kind of mountainous periphery and into the kind of flatter center of Thessaly what you find there is cults of gods to do with the taming and the submission of horses. So, for example, um, Poseidon in various forms, um, Poseidon Petraios, Poseidon Hippios, were both forms of the god Poseidon associated with mastering horses and bulls. So the way in which mankind could exploit animal resources, whereas I think the centaurs represent the kind of untamed aspect, and it's not it's not surprising that they cluster around the mountainous edges of Thessaly, where it's not suitable land for the pasture of horses, and it's where wild animals take refuge, where they lurk, where they might be a danger to passing travellers. So they're the dangerous aspect. As it happens, another scholar who has joined us on the show before has written on centaurs as well, Greta Hawes. Her interest is not so much on local myth as a transmitter of identity, 
but on how the Greeks analyzed and interpreted their own myths, including rationalization. I asked her to tell us her favorite bit about the centaurs, and, well, I'll let her tell you what and why. I find centaurs endlessly fascinating, in part because there is something so straightforward about them. Essentially, they're just a very different shape. They're humans on top and horses everywhere else. I think anyone looking at these uh, creatures is going to think one of two things. The first is this is an absolutely and obviously impossible creature. I mean, it basically looks like two species have been stitched together quite badly. But the second thing that might occur to you is, wouldn't it be amazing to be such a creature? You would essentially be a lot like yourself, a lot like a human, but you'd be able to run and to jump with all the swiftness of the fastest thoroughbred. Now, there are some great ancient um, examples of where um, we have authors thinking themselves into the body of a centaur in order to essentially discredit um, the idea that these, these things could exist. And I just want to bring to you one of my favourite such passages. It's from Galen, um, and it's from his work um, on the usefulness of parts of the body. Galen was a medical writer of the 2nd century AD. Now, he starts out by saying that humans are unusual in that they have arms rather than front legs. And he basically says that because we have these skillful hands and we can do all sorts of things with them, we actually don't need to be quick as, as a species. But then he sort of wonders, well, wouldn't it be even better if we were a sort of superhuman creature that had four animal legs plus two arms, just like the centaur? So he, he sort of sets out this fantasy of being a kind of improved superhuman. But then he thinks about this again and he says basically, well, the problem with that is that we couldn't do so many of the things that humans can actually do. And this gives a really lovely insight into what he thinks is integral to human activities. So I'm going to read to you part of this because I think it's so fun. So a human would gain nothing from this structure except quickness. There would be no advantage at all except on smooth level plains. If ever he had to run up or down hill or over sloping or irregular country, it would be far better to have legs constructed as a man's actually are. Thus a man is better able than a monstrosity, the centaur, to leap over an obstacle, to climb sharp precipitous rocks and in short to traverse all sorts of difficult country. I should like to see a centaur build a house or a ship, scramble up the mast to the yardarm, or perform any of the sailor's tasks. How terribly awkward he would be at all of them, and how perfectly impossible many of them would be for him. If he were building a house, how would he climb long slender ladders to the tops of high walls, or how would he climb the yardarm of a ship? Would he be able to row when he could not possibly sit down properly? And even if he could, the presence of his front legs would hinder the actions of his arms. But though he would be no use as a sailor, perhaps he would make a good farmer. Here too, however, he would be more than useless, especially if the task was climbing trees and picking fruit. Do not think that these are the only situations where he would be absurd, but review all the other arts and imagine him working as a blacksmith or cobbling, weaving, mending or writing books. How would he seat himself? What sort of lap would he have on which to rest his book? And how would he handle 
all the other tools. For in addition to the other special advantages man enjoys, he is the only one of all the animals who can conveniently sit down on his hip bones. Hmm. This fact has indeed escaped most people. They believe that man alone stands erect, but they do not perceive that he is also the only animal that can sit. The centaur, at any rate, whom you would properly not call a man, but rather a sort of horseman, could not support himself securely on his hip bones, and even if he could, he would be clumsy in using his hands, because in everything he did, his forelegs would get in the way, just as we too would be hindered by two long wooden sticks fastened to our chests. And if, while so equipped, we were made to recline on a couch, surely we would present a queerly mixed appearance that would be queerer still if we were sleepy. Indeed, here is another strange thing about the centaurs, namely that he could not make use at all of a couch and he would be quite unable to lie down to rest on the earth. For in the centaur, the construction of one part of his body requires one method of repose and the remainder another. The human part needs a couch, the equine needs the earth. So there you have it, being a centaur would just be plain annoying, largely because you couldn't sail, you couldn't build things, you couldn't sit down and you couldn't sleep. Well, that's it for another episode of the Greek Myth Files. And that wraps up our series on what Greek myth is and is not. When we return in January 2021, we'll turn to a new format, one that was originally envisioned for our podcast. Each episode will focus on telling myths and breaking them down in a true files fashion. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest scholars, Emma Aston and Greta Hawes, as well as my team of students, our sound engineer, Samantha Coutier, and our voice actors, AJ O'Neill and Julia Summer. And as always, our music is brought to you by the fabulous Jared Sims, whose song Brooklyn T keeps us going throughout the episodes. You should buy and listen to his music. In the meantime, we hope that this finds you all well and thriving, and we're signing off for just a little while. See you next time on the Greek Myth Files. <laughs>